You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, an NBTA board-certified criminal law specialist, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and renowned trial lawyer, Bill Powers. Some people just amaze me. It can be for different reasons. A witty personality, compassion for others, a friendly smile and kind disposition, dedication to a craft, excellence in a professional calling, intellect, centeredness, graceful faith, or generosity beyond compare. Occasionally we come across a person in our journey of life who has more than one admirable trait, but it's a rare thing indeed to meet someone, let alone be able to call them a friend who seems to excel in everything they do and who embodies every superlative we use to describe what constitutes a wonderful human being. Janet Ward Black is just one of those people. She's a beautiful soul who has quietly but effectively spent her life serving others. She very much represents the best in North Carolina, but you won't hear her talking about herself. Janet Ward Black isn't flashy. If you see her on social media, there's a good chance she's promoting a cause, building someone else up, or serving others. If you're an attorney or legal professional listening in, ask yourself this. Name a lawyer in the history of North Carolina who has been both the president of the North Carolina Bar Association and the North Carolina Advocates for Justice. Or, how many lawyers do you know who have won both the Order of the Longleaf Pine and the North Carolina State Bar Distinguished Service Award? Janet Ward Black came up in Kannapolis, North Carolina. She attended Davidson College and Duke Law School. She's clearly a scholar. And when I say she represents North Carolina, I don't mean figuratively. Janet Ward Black represented North Carolina in the 1980 Miss America pageant and won the Grand Talent Award. She literally was Miss North Carolina in 1980. How's that possible? How can one person do all that? How can they be approachable, successful in business, a leader, a living legend in the law, and possibly one of the nicest, most down-to-earth people you'd ever want to meet. A polymath is defined as someone who's competent in at least three diverse domains and integrates them into a top 1% skill. In other words, they bring the best of what humanity has discovered across those fields to help them to be more effective in their core field. Can someone be a polymath in life? Maybe a polymath in the law? That's what I hope to find out on this episode of Law Talk. Welcome, Janet Ward. Thanks so much for joining us. It truly is an honor. With that kind of introduction, you talked me up a little too much. (laughs) As ever, you're self-deprecating. And I think everything I just said about you, where you went to school, awards and things was accurate. Is that correct? Feel free to jump in. It is correct. And you have served as a wonderful example to so many people. And I can only imagine how many lives you've impacted personally and professionally. And I've always aspired to be more like you, knowing that is an impossible task. So I have to ask you just, how do you live with yourself (laughs) making us all look so bad? I can assure you I don't interpret my actions the same way that you do. (laughs) So, well, you're from North Carolina. You grew up just up the road from us. I'm a Mecklenburg person and you're from Kannapolis. So I've lived here since the 80s. And even big city Charlotte's changed quite a bit since that time period. 
One of my first jobs was out at Carowinds. Grew up off of Carmel Road, and I could actually get from Carmel Road to Carowinds about 15 minutes, which would take you, oh, gracious, solid hour now. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what it was like growing up in Kannapolis? And I always ask people, did you live in Cabarrus County or Rowan? Because, you know, it's one of those towns that actually is across two county lines. At the time, I grew up there in the house that I still own. So I'm one of the few people that they brought me home from the hospital, the house that I grew up in and that my mother lived in until she passed away. And I still now own that property. It's in Cabarrus County. Many people may not know that Kannapolis was the home of Cannon Mills, which is a large manufacturer of sheets and towels, pillowcases. That was what we were known for. Started by the Cannon family and the Cannon family provided a really good living for a lot of people in Kannapolis. And I was the daughter of a school teacher and a pharmacist. So my dad had a small chain of pharmacies, but he never got to go to college. So he actually was grandfathered in as a pharmacist, meaning that he didn't have a college degree, he didn't have a pharmacy degree, but because of the time frame when he became a pharmacist, he was permitted to continue to serve as a pharmacist until he passed away in 1980. Is your family from Kannapolis or Cabarrus County originally? No, my, my mother's from Mount Olive, the home of the Pickles, Mount Olive Pickles and Kate's Pickles. And so she was one of those cute little gherkins from down that way. <laughs> and she ended up going to Meredith College and was hired by a group in Kannapolis called the Kannapolis Bible Teachers Association. And she taught Bible in the public schools in Kannapolis at A.L. Brown High School, which is one of the prominent high schools in that area. School is what drew her to Kannapolis. My dad's first wife died when my brother was 11 years old. And so my dad was a widower trying to raise a young man who was a student at A.L. Brown. And he was pretty successful in sports and he, my father would go to the PTA meetings. And so my parents actually met at a PTA meeting. The interesting thing about it is by the time my father got up the nerve to ask my mother out, they went off on their first date. They went off on their second date and he proposed and then he got married about, they got married about four months after they met. Wow, what a wonderful story. Yeah, and he was from Marshville, a little tiny town also outside of Charlotte. So he grew up in a very small town. His siblings came of age during the depression and there were no jobs in North Carolina to speak of. So they all moved to Washington, DC and got jobs there. My dad worked sweeping up at a drugstore called People's Drugs, and they still have People's Drugs up in D.C. And then he came back to Kannapolis and started the drugstores with his brother. What was it like growing up there? I mentioned that it seems like a million years ago when Charlotte was still a small town compared to what we are now. But Kannapolis and Charlotte, while they're very close, and Lord knows you don't want to confuse or conflate Cabarrus County with Macburg County, although we tend to try to, people say I'm from Charlotte, and unless, heck, even Charlotte Motor Speedway is actually not in Charlotte, but what was it like growing up? Kannapolis is still a relatively small, it's a lovely little town, it's a neat little place to drive through, it's, the highways have made it harder to go through right now, but what was it like? It was wonderful. The kids would leave at, in the morning and come back when it was dinner time and we were in very safe environments and could play in the neighborhood and it's it was a great place of just good people a lot of the people there didn't get to enjoy a lot of education 
but they made a good living. They worked hard. They got to live in the wonderful mill houses that the mill provided for people. And then there were all these small businesses like my, what my father had that helped support the population that really predominantly worked at the mill. Concord and Kannapolis are next to each other. And so my mother ended up stopping teaching Bible in Kannapolis and started teaching English at Concord High School. So I finished my academic time in public schools in Concord. So Concord and Kannapolis were very close together and I made many good friends in both locations. It was a wonderful place to grow up. And I don't know if you recently saw that Concord was named one of the best places in the nation to, to live, which is quite a wonderful distinction. I had heard that. I have a close friend and actually lots of close friends love uh, Darren Jordan still lives in Cabarrus County. I think it's also one of the fastest growing towns in the nation. Uh, which I hate to hear because I'm a little bit of a Luddite when it comes to development now, given how things seem to be going lately. So did you then, so you did, you, where'd you go to high school? So at Concord High School. Oh, at Concord High School. Okay. Right. So then I'll tell you one thing, you don't want to go to high school where your mother's the English teacher because she would end up finding out what my grades were. Outside, and that is not always the best way for things to occur. I actually can feel for you a little bit here and empathize. My grandmother was a administrative assistant in high school for, oh, I'm gonna say 40 years. And I went to the same high school as my mom and my mom had seven brothers and sisters. And in many ways I was the youngest and everything got reported back to Nana. And I had my chemistry high school, my professor in chemistry was my mom's chemistry teacher as well. And there were no secrets. And I, my, my Nana, rather than make me take the bus, used to pick me up every morning I never really realized at the time what a gift that was I got to spend with her. And we, she would say, <laughs> we used to call her Ma Archer was the chemistry teacher. Ma Archer said you were acting up or something like that. I do appreciate it. It was a simpler time even then. So Well, and you and I have something in common that way. So I mentioned to you that my dad's first wife passed away. And so I had a half brother, but my dad was 48 when I was born. So hmm. he was much older and my mother was 32. And my mother was the extrovert. She was the one who was always out making speeches, just always in the public eye, whereas my dad was much more introverted. But because of the way the drugstore ran, my dad took me to school from the kindergarten till the day I turned 16 hmm. and picked me up and never missed a day and was never late once. And that included him picking me up and taking me to piano lessons and dance lessons and sitting in the car, which was not air conditioned and waiting for me every single year. It most, I think when he passed away, he had a green Ford Pinto before they were declared a health hazard <laughs> because of that. <laughs> now when he would pick me up from school, we would go to the house and have dinner. And then he would go back to work until 10 o'clock at night, every other night. And now in retrospect, as an adult, I realized what an incredible sacrifice that was every morning, every afternoon to do that so that he could be have a really meaningful part in my life. And I'm very grateful for that. That's what a precious story. I actually, I went to high school with my uncle who was a year or 18 months older than me. And the conversations we had back and forth with the car with Nana, and he got to the point where he didn't want to ride with us. So I did, but I did appreciate the gift because it was a bit of a drive. Mm. Were you, now, you would insult by saying this, but you're a mo to me, you're a motivated person. You've always got a plan. You're organized. You're uh, there's 
you don't do things accidentally. I guess I don't mean that to conscribe you at all, but were you like that growing up or did this something, is this something that you've developed into or? No, I think it was innate that I figure if I am someplace, I'm supposed to do something. And so I guess, particularly in some of the leadership roles that you mentioned, I figure I'm not there just to take up space that I need to be using what creativity and brain that I have to figure out if I can improve the circumstance of the institution. So I think I was pretty much like that from the beginning. Nothing wrong with that. Were you, did you know growing up, I wanted to, I suspect you always knew you wanted to serve others. That's just so who you are. But did you know it was going to be in law or did you, you actually have a scientific background too at Davidson, which I did not know and I've known you for a while. I knew exactly what it, what I wanted to do from the time I was about three. Oh, and wow. that was to be a doctor. Ah. And so I was quite the science head. For example, when I was a teenager, people would bring me jars of animals to dissect as Christmas presents. And I did manage to get a chemistry scholarship to Davidson. And the worst thing that happened to me was I placed out of high school biology. And that put me in organic chemistry the second semester of my freshman year at Davidson. And that was the end of my plan to become a doctor. <laughs> I had never made bad grades before, and I made a C plus on one of their tests, and I thought I was going to die. At Davidson, it was very competitive for pre-med there. And my dad that I mentioned about growing up in the depression, he'd always told me, he said, I want you to have a job where you never have to ask somebody for a job. So I knew doctors didn't have to ask people for a job. At least I thought they didn't. And I'm like, okay, what else can I be? I know I'll be a lawyer. And it is that level of intellectual rigor that I use to make the decision to go to law school. Now, in addition, when I mentioned about my chemistry scholarship, that actually came from the Cannon Foundation in Kannapolis. And the scholarships that the Cannon Foundation provided were in very specific study areas because a lot of what they were hoping is that people would come back and work in the mills or work in textiles so it was a way to bring young people back into the community so economics was not on the list of approved majors but mm. at davidson wonderful liberal arts school that it was that's what i decided i wanted to to major in so i had to march myself back to the canon board and ask them if they would make an exception and let me change my major from chemistry to economics and still keep the funding that they provided. And they were kind enough to do that. I had no great, now in retrospect, I know it's exactly what I was supposed to do. I would have made a rotten doctor. The minute somebody died on me, I would have been a puddle and not able to operate. But by, eight, by working in the law, we're able to affect policy that can help, for example, all North Carolinians. So it allows a bigger impact than one person at a time. So in, in retrospect, it was absolutely the right thing. But did I have some good plan to do this? Absolutely not. I started as a biology major in college. And I have a theory about, I, did, I took a lot of chemistry. And I had this theory that you're either solution chemistry or organic. And you're, and I was more to solution chemistry. You either like algebra calc or you like trig and geometry. I was a solution chemistry algebra calc. And I like the, yeah, organic was not. I don't think anyone has an easy time with organic chemistry. And I thought I wasted 
a lot of credit hours. I was actually pretty close to, I could have, I don't remember the exact number of hours, but it took me a little bit longer to get through college in part because of switching majors. But I thought well, at least now. I'm sorry. I've heard organic chemistry has made more lawyers than about any other course <laughs> in study. And I believe that. And actually, I'm grateful for it. I'll tell you the truth, though. I don't think a scientific background in what you do and or what I do is necessarily bad. No, Understanding I, body mechanics and things are has, has been valuable to me. Yeah. I think I know the answer. I think I know the answer to this. And I know you're and I remember when your mom passed, and I was saddened for you at that time. And I know she was an incredible influence on you. And so I'm assuming she's going to be one of your greatest influences, but who were your influences growing up? It could be family, it could be national leaders, it could be friends. Oddly, I think it's somebody that I met when I was a docent in fifth grade. There was a pathologist who came to my classroom and I was supposed to show parents around the classroom. And he, his name was J.O. Williams and he, thanked me for showing him around and asked me if I wanted to come to the hospital and see what they did in the pathology lab. And I think just the offer of that time to let me see what he did for a living was something that I shouldn't have expected. So I think that probably that that generosity had an impact on me that I've tried to pay forward a good bit. But you're exactly right. It's said that you don't think your parents have any sense until you're 30. I think that there was a long period of time where that was true. But in retrospect, I now recognize the influence that being a teacher had on young people. So for example, Every time we would go out to dinner in Kannapolis or Concord, somebody would come up to my mother and say, Ms. Black, you were the hardest teacher I had in high school, but now I've become a so and because of what I learned, that sort of admiration of the influence of teachers was really profound. And so I've had some teachers in my life that, that had a big impact on me as well, but I think my mother first and foremost. And as you feel comfortable, and it's not something that I think, I, Reminds me of a verse that I think is attributed to natural law theorists where it says, go therefore and spread the good news of the gospel and if necessary, use words. And yes. so I, I don't want to misquote or cite it, but I believe that you are a person of faith and it in many ways directs who you are and as you feel comfortable and not trying to get preachy with anybody. But I think it's okay to, and I'm trying to ask you questions about your background and who you are and how, it, how that influences how you treat others. Do you feel comfortable talking about that at all or? Absolutely. Okay. And that sort of corollary of what you just said is that people don't forget how you make them feel. That no matter what you say, if you make them feel badly, that's what they remember. So I think that's a really important thing. And I've had the ability to be in lots of wonderful positions where I've had the opportunity to touch a lot of different folks. And it doesn't take very long just to listen to somebody, just to sincerely ask, how are you doing? And looking for that rote kind of response and mean it. When preparing for these things, I try to research a little bit and you're one of the ones that's just easy because it's difficult in the fact that you have to keep scrolling the page, it keeps going, but your activities in the church and actually listen to a radio interview you did for, it was, I think, Toys or Tots or something at Christmas time. And I have a friend who's active in that as well. So. Here's a question I always like asking lawyers because we don't always start out doing the thing we want to do. I used to paint. I worked in a golf course cutting greens, worked in an ice cream shop. I did dishes. I was a bouncer at a bar. 
and they poured concrete. What kind of jobs have you had in your lifetime? Oddly, very limited. My dad, because he had to work so hard during mm -hmm. his lifetime, thought that if I made good grades and I did what I was supposed to, that I shouldn't have to work much mm -hmm. in the summer. My first real big person job was at the ripe old age of 16. Would you like to know what I did? Yes. <laughs> So I actually worked for WPEG radio station in Concord at the outskirts of Charlotte. And I was a radio personality on the phone with Morning Guy. And then I did public service announcements for the radio station and I sold radio advertising in Charlotte. Now, if you're 16 years old and you're in a car and you're a female by yourself, Nowadays, I don't think women would do that very mm -hmm. much, cold call businesses. Mm -hmm. But I learned very quickly that sales was not where I wanted to end up. <laughs> I didn't want to pour concrete. It made me a, a better student, that's for sure. Why Davidson College? I heard about the scholarship, and I think Davidson's amazing. Yeah. It is the people I've known that go to and graduate Davidson always just blow me away. I'm sure you could have gone any school you wanted to in North Carolina, but what was it about Davidson that attracted you? Let me give you the inappropriate answer. I did tour a, a few schools before I made a decision and two things happened. One, Davidson wanted me. And so they offered me the Lunsford Richardson scholarship and Lunsford Richardson is the guy who created Vicks Vaporub. And it's ironic that's started here in Greensboro where I am now. But then the other thing that happened that just floored me Davidson had, it didn't have, they had fraternities and because there were so few women, there really weren't sororities. So it was predominantly male when I started attending. And I went to one of the eating houses during lunch with the guy who'd been assigned to take me around the campus. And when I walked in the door, all the guys were sitting there eating lunch and they stood up when I walked in the door. And I thought that's, interesting and it's shocking for that to happen and certainly made an impression it's a good impression in fact when i grew up if you didn't stand up and when anyone entered a room it was somewhat rude and you never wore a hat inside the right. building and you kept your elbows off the table something and i still probably wrote handwritten thank you notes for bill i still i don't cursive <laughs> it's not always the best as i've gotten older it's got a little bit more messy i have to wear stronger glasses but you're yeah you wrote thank you notes and we used to joke about it. My, my wife is that way too, to this day. And she's a Guilford County native. She grew up in High Point. I like to tell people she's from LA. She and her family are from LA, Lower Archdale. Mm. And I think my father-in-law still mad at me that my daughter was one of the first in their lineage in at least 10 generations that wasn't born in Guilford County. Oh, and then like your mom, I think you said your mom, I married a, a Meredith Angel. She's a Meredith grad and did not know each other in college. We were there at the same time. I was at NC State. She was at Meredith. And we met each other years later in Charlotte. After you did Davidson, which I assume was a good experience and a learning experience, challenging. That's the problem with really good schools is you can be a number one in high school and move to another level. And then you struggle a little bit. Yeah. My daughter's at Sewanee which is also another very good school and did well in high school. And it is a challenge for her, yeah. but you must have done well because you ended up at Duke Law School. And not that I'm a huge fan of other basketball team. And I wish Coach Shoshevsky all the best in the future, but that's a big deal getting to Duke Law School. And you obviously said you knew you wanted to go 
what to law school. What was it about Duke that appealed to you? Again, I'm guessing you could have gone where you wanted. You know how I mentioned that there was no great plan for me to become a lawyer? There was no great plan about where I wanted to go to law school. I knew I wanted to stay in state, and we can come back to that in a minute. My mm -hmm. junior year at Davidson became a really interesting one. But the way I made a decision was I decided I wanted to go to either Chapel Hill or to Duke and waited uncharacteristically late to make a decision. And so I drove to Chapel Hill to see that campus and I couldn't find a parking space and I couldn't find the building because it said Van Hecke, we talk on it, not mm -hmm. law. And then I drove to Durham and there was this big gravel parking lot outside of a big old ugly building that said law on the outside. And I said, that's the place for me. <laughs> So I chose to based on basically the parking situation. And I don't think it's gotten any chapel. I've been in a time or two at the, I think, I apologize if I'm calling it wrong, the school of government. And I seem to just go in circles and go in circles. And then having gone to state, I'm not that far down the road. But I've tried a case or two right there off of Franklin Street. In fact, I did not know that the courthouse in Chapel Hill is actually in the post office. And so I was walking back and forth. I'd go past the hot dog place and then I would go down the street a little bit more. I'm like, it's, it says I'm right here. And then finally someone said, you're looking for the courthouse. And I went in and to the left side is a, it's a neat little courtroom. And then mm -hmm. the right side's the post office. So I think that's interesting, the parking lot. So note to all law school deans, have good parking. Exactly. So you, you did law school, it's the three year thing. I think it was still, it's always been that. I don't know if any school's been longer than that. And then you went to work for the district attorney's office, right? Yes, I was actually in a small firm. For, first off, I made a number of errors going uh, during law school, one of which was not taking trial advocacy because I was afraid to speak in public. So I thought well, I need to do whatever I need to do to not have to speak anymore in public. So I didn't take trial ad. And I thought that I wanted to be a corporate lawyer that I wanted to maybe represent sports stars or actresses and actors. And when I had a hard time finding a job when I got out of Duke Law School. So I ended up in a teeny tiny law firm in Charlotte, right downtown, and I was living in Salisbury and having to commute back and forth every day. And I started about doing that work and realized not only was I not good at it, I didn't like it. And I didn't care really about page 27 and where the comma was and should it be a semicolon and versus or. So I had to figure out what I was going to do next. Cabarrus and Rowan counties were together mm -hmm. initial and they had never had a girl DA before. So I went and interviewed in my home county and much to my delight, the elected district attorney took a chance on me and hired me as the first girl assistant, as he would refer to me. And that was a real challenge for everybody because they'd not had a whole lot of women in court there. And it ended up being one of the greatest jobs I could ever have because I was forced to stand up and try and have a docket with 200 cases on it five, four days a week in district court. And then after about 10 months in district court, one of the senior assistants went out on his own. So they kicked me upstairs, as they say, and I went to superior court. And then I got to try jury cases for almost three years. And it's very hard these days to get that kind of courtroom experience in most practice areas. And I loved every single minute of it. I loved police officers. I loved what they did. I loved the bar in Salisbury and Cabarrus. I knew a lot of those lawyers, frankly, a lot of them 
were taught by my mother and they were therefore afraid of mistakes mm-hmm. taught by my mother. And it was just an absolutely remarkable time to be able to learn trial skills. Well, there you go, y'all. You have one of the best trial advocates in the state of North Carolina who did not take trial advocacy in law school. My trial advocacy class at Campbell, it wasn't optional. We had to take it. And one of my professors was, I had two that I remember, I think both of them. One's Rick Glazier and the other one was Billy Richardson. And they were just private practicing attorneys and don't take long. You can Google either one of them and find out what they've done in the state. Rick is running one of the programs for advocacy for people. And Billy just finished up one of his terms or finished up one of his terms in the North Carolina General Assembly, both Fayetteville, Cumberland County lawyers. And that's one of my great sadnesses because now I realized the quality of lawyers that were tre- teaching trial ad at Duke. It was the Don Deskins and the Don Cowan mm-hmm. people that I knew once I got out, how prominent they were and how much I could have learned under them. But I was afraid to do it because I frankly was afraid that I would get embarrassed publicly if I took trial ad. It would be too much stress on me. And it was the wrong decision now in retrospect, but at least I got to make up for it in the DA's office. And that's one of the disadvantages of living in Charlotte. I would teach in a minute if I could even a part-time basis. I would love to do that. It's just, it's a haul. There ain't nowhere close to Charlotte is, we like to say, or as Lester Ramsey used to call us, the great state of Mecklenburg. So mm-hmm. who are the leaders in the law then in Cabarrus Row? Charlotte used to be like Mech, and I think Gaston across the river was part of ours. And then there was that big district that went from edge of High Point. So Lexington, it went all the way across over to what we say, Eardale and over to Taylorsville. Mm-hmm. So you had Mooresville, Statesville, went across Rowan. So when you were, and I had mentors and people, I just, they'd walk in the courtroom, I'd sit down and watch them. Who were the people in, when you were working in Cabarrus County or Rowan County, excuse me, as a DA? One was, actually two of them were former assistant district attorneys, Tim Hawkins and Wayne Nixon in Cabarrus County. Then I had great admiration for a number of the judges that I appeared in front of. We, of course, drew judges from outside of Cabarrus County and the ones The one that jumps readily to mind is Jules Russo, who came from up in the mountains, and he was just legendary to to get to watch him handle people and lawyers and victims and defendants. Also, James Davis, who now still practices in Rowan County, his father was a district court judge, starting as a district court judge when I was in the DA's office, and he was one of those people where his heart was so committed to trying to get people to do better that you could just listen to the way he talked to everybody in the courtroom and see how he was trying to make the world a little bit of a better place, even if he was seeing the same criminal defendant every other month for a period of time. And James, the son, is like that. In fact, I know James's son as well. They both practice uh, together. And golly, you feel like you're royalty when you walk in a courtroom. He just stops and wants to sit down and tell you how much he appreciates you individually. And he's one of those ones he asks a question and wants to know the answer. You heard me mention some of the metrics in the 80s. And I have a daughter who is in college and she's an athlete and she's had to work for things. And I don't think I fully understood 
the nature of that or how much of a struggle it can be. But what was it like in the 80s being one of the minority in, in, in your class? It, I don't know if it was that way in college. You said a majority of the young men were, or students in Davidson were men. And I don't know what Duke's metrics were. And when I was, by the time I was in law school, it was roughly equal. But what was it like in schooling and professionally coming up? Well, at Davidson, they'd only had one graduating class that included women by the time I started there. The, the, dormitory, the women's dormitory had urinals on every floor. So there were a hundred of us, a hundred women and 300 men in the freshman class. So that'll give you an idea of the dynamic. Mm -hmm. At Duke, there were, I can't remember what the percentage was, but it was, it may not have been quite as high as you mentioned for 1985 is when I graduated from law school. I don't feel like it was as much as 38%. It was probably a little bit below that. But what was particularly interesting, even if women were in law school, and even to this day, they often self-select against litigation as a career. So in the courthouse and in, in courtrooms generally, you didn't often see women as the prosecutor or women as the judge or women as the defense attorney. So I had a very crusty Superior Court judge in Rowan County, and everybody who knew him knew he was quite crusty, and his name was Tom C. And everybody in the world was scared to death of Judge C. And they had good reason to mm. be scared of Judge C. He did not suffer fools lightly. And when I became a Superior Court Assistant District Attorney, I had to try to figure out how, did how do I get Judge C where he thinks not only am I okay, but I'm a female and I'm okay. I'm competent to do the work that I'm called upon to do. And it took a long while, but then there was one day when he invited me to go to lunch with the bailiffs and members of the judiciary. And I knew that I had arrived because if I was, if I had gotten invited to lunch with Judge C, that was a pretty good sign that he had accepted me. <laughs> now, he was quite a character, very stern, but there was one thing he was not stern about, his pets. And I had an assistant district attorney who's now a judge in Rowan County, Marshall Bickett, and Marshall raised championship Doberman Pinchers. And Marshall, whenever he would have a litter of puppies, he'd bring them up to the DA's office. It was much more casual. There was no security. It was mm -hmm. a different time. And so I decided that one Friday afternoon when we didn't have court, that I was going to bring my mini, my miniature schnauzer up to the courthouse for Friday afternoon. My dog's name was Mr. Puppy, very dignified. So that afternoon, Mr. Puppy disappears from the DA's office. Judge C's office is down the hall. And I'm thinking, I'm dead. Mr. Puppy has gone in to see Judge C and I will. I, he's going to put me in jail. So I ended up sticking my head very gently around Dr. Judge C's door and I said, Judge C, have you seen my dog, Mr. Puppy? And he, in this kind of imperial way, waved his hand toward me and had me look under his desk and Mr. Puppy was taking a nap under his feet. And to the end of his life in every, and Mr. Puppy's life, anytime I saw Judge C, the first phrase out of his mouth was, how's Mr. Puppy? I knew he had a cat named Miss Kitty, and so they had a lot in common. So that was how Judge C and I ended up bonding for a long period of time, was over Mr. Puppy escaping the DA's office in Rowan County. 
And you're still a dog lover, if I remember correctly. You have a younger puppy. I thought he was a German Shepherd or something, one of those. Is, am I right? She is indeed, and she is certainly not courthouse ready. <laughs> she had a cast on. I think I saw she was wearing a cast there for a while. Yeah. You're a former president of North Carolina Advocates for Justice. Some of the people we've named have been active with the organization. It's an organization that is very dear to both of our hearts. And I honestly don't know how I got involved, but do you remember how you got involved in NCA? I remember very distinctly. So I've been practicing in the same building in Greensboro for 30 years this coming July. And when I joined the firm, one of the senior partners here was a former NCAJ president. It was called the North Carolina Trial Lawyers at mm -hmm. the time. And within the first two weeks of me joining the firm, he called me in and explained to me that I would be joining the North Carolina Association of Trial Lawyers. There was not any question about that. I didn't really know what it was because I'd never heard of it before when I was in Rowan and Cabarrus counties. And now it's caused me to be a much better lawyer as a result of all the years that I've been involved with NCAJ. And my guess is, Bill, the same is true for you. It is. It was. Who was the your former partner? That Bill Horsley. Oh, okay. Okay. And we're on president number, gosh, I don't even know what number we're at. It's John McCabe. Uh, right to now. Six, close to six, not mm -hmm. 60 years. And the past presidents are an amazing group of people. I just love whenever, and COVID really has killed this, but I love just, you can sit down and talk to any one of those people and learn something from them. And they're all very approachable. And maybe it's because of what we all had gone through during our respective terms that there's this yeah. knowing look. And actually, now I think about it, I think I was involved in NCATL in law school, didn't even know what it was. And then when I got into private practice, I needed some CLE. And I remember going down to Ocean Creek and seeing, I, I always tell the story, I see Wade Bird rolls in and his linen and saw Mr. Thorpe dancing, that saying dance like you don't care or no one's watching. And I thought I could, I get this group. And that was, that Ocean Creek was such a fun time. And I got a year's supply of highlighters and markers and pens. There was a lot of the kids nowadays called swag, but there was yes. so much swag and I had been in my own practice that I didn't have any of those things. So I'd go and talk to all the vendors, which actually didn't establish relationships. So vendors, if you go to NCAJ, give swag. That's how you get people to your table. My mother attended a number of those conventions over mm -hmm. the years, and she would go visit all of the vendors. So she would end up with more swag than I did because <laughs> they, would all, and they would say, hey, make sure you give this to your mother. <laughs> That's great. I met neat people. I met Barry Sheck in an elevator. He was friends with the David Freeman and some of the guys, some people from Court TV and the speakers were always in, in excellent. And back in Ocean Creek, if y'all don't know where that is, it's in, I guess it's technically North Monroe Beach. It was a little bit different feel. And I'm looking forward to, we're having our convention this year in Charlotte. And if you are an NCAJ member, please come to convention. And if you're not an NCAJ member, I'm going to ask you, why are you not an NCAJ member? And so not only have you been active in NCAJ, but you were the president of the Bar Association, which is, I know what the pipeline is like to get an NCAJ. I cannot imagine how much more complicated, and how much more you've had to do for the Bar Association. And you did some of it at the same time. So how did you get involved with the Bar Association? A member of NCAJ, Melinda Lawrence, called me and asked me to serve on, when I was a puppy lawyer, asked me to serve on the North Carolina Bar Association Litigation Section Council. And at the time I was so dim-witted 
I didn't know the distinction between the Bar Association and the State Bar. The State Bar is the disciplinary arm, whereas the Bar Association is a voluntary organization that's continuing education. And I knew Melinda's reputation. I'm like, wow, this is really great. This gal's calling me. And I said, help me understand why this would be a good thing for me to do. And she said a sentence that I will never forget for the entirety of my life, which is, I never left a meeting. I didn't come out a better lawyer. And that has been true for me for NCAJ and the NCBA, that the richness of the people that you meet, the interesting things that you're trying to conquer, particularly like legislative issues that are happening or difficult practice areas, that sort of started my road with the Bar Association. And then for both the Bar Association and the NCAJ, it is not something that you run for. You don't politic, mm -hmm. not the kind of typical election. And there's a difference in how the presidents are selected. There's a nominating committee and a lot of deference given to the current president on who the president-elect should be for the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, NCAJ. But for the North Carolina Bar Association, the past presidents choose the presidential nominee. So you end up in a room or on Zoom with all of the past presidents arguing about who would be the best person to come in line for the Bar Association. And the Bar Association is much more inclusive in the types of practice areas that are covered. And so the things that I got to accomplish with NCAJ, a little bit different with what I got to do with the NCBA, but both of them have greatly enriched the fun I get to have as being a lawyer. And the truth is I love what I do and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I was thinking I've been on, I have NCAJ people coming to my office here shortly and going to an NCAJ sidebar social at a local bar tonight. I was on a North Carolina Bar Association legislative advisory committee meeting yesterday. I'm continue to be active, even though I was president of those organizations more than 15 years or more ago. I don't know if you remember this. I have a fond memory of you. I had just recently been told that I was going to be president of NCAJ and the mock trial competition was in Raleigh and we were the NCAJ is the host of that and does great work. One of my pals from law school, Becky Britton, Rebecca Britton, still very active in the organization, but we were in one of the uptown towers and because we were hold, holding the national event, we got some national level speakers and I actually got to meet Justice Scalia and talk to yeah. him for a few minutes, which was really interesting. And I'll never forget some of the things he told me about when we were just standing there a few minutes and told me what the problems were with the Supreme Court, which I thought were really interesting. But after I spoke with him, I saw you, and I think I may have seen Pishko, David Pishko, and I think Chris Nichols was there and Dick Taylor. And I was still freaked out because, man, taking the reins of that organization is, wow, it's something I've always wanted to do. And the mantle mm -hmm. responsibility is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I remember you, you approached me, I think, and said, you're going to be okay. <laughs> We're going to get you through this. And I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm doing. And you said, we get you through this. So thank you for that kindness. It meant a lot. And I remember sitting down with my wife and Sammy, and she said, that's a nice person. She, you needed that. So thank you, Janet Moore. Now, I don't know how many years ago. did a magnificent job. Not as, there's never as much as you like to get done. And there's never enough time. I, I enjoyed the time and I'm so happy with the people 
who have taken the role since then. People, Brad Bannon, who, these are all, I say every one of them, dear friend, Brad Bannon and David Henson and John McCabe and Valerie and uh, and then the people in front of me, you and Mark Sumwalt and Chris Nichols. And it's just, it's every one of them. I, I use this very simple metric in life. If you're the type of person, if you call me at two in the morning, I'll and say, I got a flat tire, come change your tire for you. And every one of those people, I'd say, okay, where are you at? Let's, let's, we'll, I'll drive up Wednesday and change your tire for you. So we're living in a different time right now. I think you and I both try to be positive. I catch my occasional grief for the, apparently I'm the king of dad jokes now on Facebook. I think Jay Trey, he uh, you know, asked me if I had no shame or <laughs> not afraid of the fall. A fellow Duke person, Duke Chapel Hill person. And so I think we try to focus on the positive, be a little bit goofy. And there are plenty of things to be negative about. We're, right now we're dealing with tragedy over in Ukraine. But what are some of the positives that you see? Understanding there's room for improvement. And so it could be the positives in the community. It could be positives in the law. What are your thoughts about that? What do you see that's good now? A couple things come to mind. We have some 30-year-old lawyers here in our office that are absolutely sparkling. That they're going to achieve so much. And they're so much smarter than I was Mm -hmm. when I was 30. And they are people of great character and great motivation. And they strive for continuous excellence. And so I can see what they can do with just a little bit of, think about joining this or think about being a part of that, enlarge their horizons on the world. They're going to do just great. And so I'm very excited about the young crop of lawyers that I see coming along. There is a thought process that you're supposed to balance your work and your life. And they left that part out when I was at Duke. And so I never really heard about that, nor did I think about it too very much. I just figured I would do what I needed to do. But these younger lawyers seem to really be figuring out a way to try to do both. It is not easy. You either run a great law practice and you, or you have a great relationship with your family and you have a lot of investment and involvement in the community, but doing all three at one time is almost impossible. So I think you have to go through seasons where there's a focus on one of those three kind of columns. What I've seen so far, they're doing a really good job of balancing that, so I am encouraged. Also, we have the opportunity at the firm where we know so many nonprofits in our area that are doing remarkable work on, frankly, very little funds a lot of times. And there's a great amount of infrastructure that's out there to support them, and so I think The great thing we like to do is to make sure that this person knows about this other person, that they may have two different nonprofits, but they're trying to invent the same wheel. Mm. And if we can connect them together, we can make their lives easier. We get to just see some really remarkable things. I'll give you, I'll give you one Mecklenburg County example. And because it is a difficult situation, I'm not going to name the name of the nonprofit, but I'm going to tell you what they do. They go to strip clubs. And they minister, they provide sort of emotional support for women who are working in the strip clubs. And they're a bunch of little old ladies and they show up at a strip club at 10 o'clock some night and they eat the buffet and they hang around until the show's over. And then they just tell the women that if they ever want a friend to go get their nails done or just talk to, that they would like to provide that service. And it is amazing to see that there are people out there that one are willing to do that 
that they cherish the people who are living in that lifestyle in such a way that they'll give up their own comfort to be able to provide that service. And they do lots of remarkable things during the year, but one of which is they have a Christmas party for the women working in the strip clubs. And they invite the children of the strippers. They invite the, if they have a pimp, they invite the pimps. If they invite the strip club owners, they provide these elaborate gift bags to each of the women because they want them to know that they are valued and that they are cherished. And they obviously are trying to work toward getting women to make a decision to come out of that lifestyle but oddly they've created friendships with the people who own the strip clubs and are not seen as a negative but in fact as a positive getting to see that there's some that sort of ministry is on the heart of somebody is just a miracle to me i find it just stunning and sitting here listening to the story i'm like wow that's really a unique ministry and then you think of the story of Zacchaeus and you think of who even tax collectors love the people that they love and who do we go and minister to. I do think it's important for younger lawyers, more newer to the practice lawyers is what I prefer to call it. And I refer to more seasoned lawyers and as opposed to old. I don't like using the old young. I think it's encouraging, Janet, to hear the different ministries that are available and with less experienced attorneys there are generational differences and to me it's a bit ironic that the one thing that the newer generational lawyers are wanting is that level of connection and the way to get connected is to establish the relationships and so i encourage our associates to go to these different events it's one of the strengths of ncaj where you build relationships i think the single greatest strength of ncaj because there are lots and lots of good lawyers across the state but i think one of our defining characteristics was our diversity in thought and our diversity in membership and us being friends with one another first. And there isn't a county in North Carolina that I don't know some NCAJ lawyer involved. So Janet, I want to, Janet Ward, I want to thank you for your time today. It's gone about twice as long as I said it was going to. I had a feeling that was going to happen. People ask me when we do these podcasts, how long it's going to last. And I told you, you know, when it's a good conversation, it normally lasts about an hour. And so thank you for your time. Thank you for your mentorship to so many people in the state of North Carolina and your kind heart. I am a fan of being lavish in approbation and praise when it's genuine and I genuinely admire you. I don't get to see you very much. We both have placed at Bald Head Island. Someday we're going to be able to get a meal together down there. But thank you so much for your time. And to the listeners of Law Talk, if there are topics that are interesting to you or subject matters that you think would be good to talk or talk about or speakers, please email me at Law Talk with Bill Powers. My telephone number is 704-342-HELP. And Janet Ward, if anyone would like to call you for whatever reason, do you mind sharing your information? No, glad to. Our toll-free number is 800 800- Five three one nine one nine one, and we're always ta- happy to talk to people who have an interest in law, is either a career or a lawyer who may be serving out there. We take mentorship very seriously, and we try to help where we can. And we have lots of encouraging words. I think we've seen a lot of ups and downs, and we're happy to help talk people through them. Janet Ward, next time I'm in Guilford County, maybe we can catch lunch at uh, Guilford County's got some of the best Vietnamese restaurants in the state. So maybe we can catch a a lunch together next time. So thanks for listening, y'all. And Janet Ward, hope to see you soon at Bald Head. You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers. 
your resource for legal issues and legislation, practice tips, professionalism, and policy discussions. Want to talk to Bill Powers? Call 704-342-HELP. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decision.